0: The scripture this morning comes from uh, the book of Acts, chapter 13, uh, several passages throughout that chapter. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God, but Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil,' You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. King David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And they went out. The people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This is the word of God.
1: Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. It's good to see so many of you this morning. Uh, Welcome to worship at 10 o'clock. I did want to offer a couple of comments on... uh, just kind of the events of the past week, if you don't mind, uh, as to why, you know, for many of you, you know, we were, we were uh, planning to be back in two services this morning. Obviously, we're not, and then we, we did the inconceivable, and not only did we change that up on you, but we switched the time up on you at the same time. So the first thing I want to do is say thank you. Thank you for all of those who helped. Um, our elders met this week, very last minute with me. Our staff, somehow David got signs out in front of the church. We'd made this decision on Wednesday, and there were signs out there by Friday. Uh, And so our staff did a great job. And those of you who passed the word along, we really are grateful. So everybody did a great job, uh, and I wanted to say thank you. But what I wanted to let you know is um, the church is 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 an organization unlike any other organization really in the world in that. The church is successful in its mission. Uh, it actually, success is actually harmful to the organization itself. Uh, the very nature of the church's success, in other words, brings harm to the organization. Every other organization, success means the building up. It means the, the flourishing of the organization. That's the whole point, right? To see the stock prices rise, to see, to see expansion and all this kind of stuff happen. But the church is an organization that does not exist for itself. And so success means that as you're being successful in things God God's called you to, you're actually doing harm harm to yourself. It's very much like the gospel that says unless you die, uh, the seed can't be planted in the gospel forward. And so, for you to see gospel, you know, advance out of your life comes through your own death and uh, and and that's that sort of thing. And so, we have had a, a vision as a church. We've had a, a stated goal that we. Um, we want to get to 450 to 500 people in two services on Sunday morning because we believe that from that place we can do, We need, in other words, we need those numbers, we need, we need that kind of collective energy and so forth in order to do all of the other things we feel like God has called us to, which include sending missionaries all over the world like we've done with the Ellswicks to Nicaragua, which also includes in starting initiatives in our city that we think are really helpful to the city, like Hartford Winter Haven with Brad Beattie, and also planting churches. We're a part of Renew Polk, which is an organization of churches in our denomination in this county that want to see 20 churches planted in the next 20 20 years. 20 churches in 20 years. And we want to continue to plant new churches all over the city because we believe it's the best way to see the city flourish. And so in wanting to do all of that, we feel like it's good if we could get to 450 to 500 people. And so that's why we've, we've made the decision to go to two services last fall, and we've been kind of pushing towards that. But here's where I think uh, I got caught as being naive and maybe a little bit arrogant, and that is that we have been we have been successful. Uh, we have been successful in all of those things. The Ellswick's are flourishing on the field. Brad is up and going, and Hartford Winter Haven is doing great. We, in February, planted a daughter church in the southwest part of our city, so we've seen all of those things happen. But what I don't think uh, we took into account is even though Tim Rice, who was my mentor and um, coach in church planting, when he looked at me and said, y'all are going to do this, it's great, but it's hard and it's going to take you 18 to 24 months to recover from it. And I thought, "Yeah, not no, not us. Not me. And yet, in February, we planted the church, and I think, uh, looking through the summer at, at some of the numbers and some of those kinds of things, we're still kind of in that recovery mode from that. And so as we began to come to the fall... Uh, last fall, we, there were so many of us in this room that we literally couldn't fit. We had, there was one story I think I told you. Uh, last fall, we had a family come uh, to the church, drop their kids off at uh, the kids over there in the kids' worship place, came over here, couldn't find a seat to sit in the sanctuary, so they went right back over, got their kids, and went home. Because there literally wasn't room. There, what, there was not room to even move uh, in the room. Uh, and the reality is, is this fall, that's just not the case. There's, we're, we're about 15% lower in attendance than we were uh, last September and August. And so we have some room to grow. We have some room to kind of refill the sanctuary and, and do those sorts of things. And we thought it good uh, to just take a breath, relax, let God work in his time, recover, uh, get ourselves geared up and ready to go, uh, and then when 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 the Lord does that work among us, and when we see the numbers come up, uh, then we'll then we'll move back into two services. Now I say that to say that could take place at any time, so get ready, kind of buckle your seatbelt because we don't know what God is going to do. But that was really the. The uh, the decision making behind the staying in one service rather than two. So for some of you, I know that's really good news. And for some of you, I know we heard that you like the later start time. So we hope you can see the ten o'clock instead of nine thirty is a concession. Anybody excited about ten o'clock instead of nine thirty? Yeah, look, there you go. See, we knew it. I didn't know it, but our our elders were wise enough to know that that would be a good thing. Uh, but what it, what it, what I want to say to you is is being church and I, and being church on mission like we want to means sacrifice at every turn. And so We've given you kind of a reprieve from the sacrifice of having to be in two services and and really gear up for workers and volunteers and all those kinds of things. Uh, And so you're off the hook as far as that goes, but it doesn't mean you're off the hook for the sacrifice that really is required. Uh, Not only are we about 15% down in attendance because we gave away 15% of our church to our church plant, we also gave away 15% of our, our, our financial means to the church plant as well, and so we're behind financially for the year. And so even as we're here in one service, uh, you know, and we, and we enjoy being together, there are ways that we still need to sacrifice uh, and push so that the gospel can go forward and we can have all that we need to do, everything God's asked us and called us to do. You with me? So be aware of those things. Enjoy this time together. It doesn't mean, please don't think, something must be wrong. Uh, we must be failing somewhere. It actually is not that at all. It's because something is very, very right. It's because God has answered our prayers Uh, But there's still a great deal of work for us to do. So show up. It's a great, great reminder. Bring your friends. Let's fill this place again. Let's get to two services. Let's dig deep uh, and be generous financially uh, so that we can get back to the place where we can begin to make preparations for moving forward the way we want to, to continue to do all the things in the city we feel called to and to plant the churches that we'd like to. Amen. You with me? So that's the status report of where we are. So good to see you this morning. Glad you're here. We continue uh, in a series in the in not in the gospel in the in the book of Acts, uh, which is written by Luke, who also wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke. And so uh, we'll be doing this for the, the remainder of the year. And so it's just a, it's it's really a great a great picture of of what of what is possible for the church to be in the power of the Spirit. That's really what Acts is about. It's about what it is possible for the church to be. In the power of the Spirit. And so we come this morning to this chapter in Acts 13. And this this chapter here, Acts 13, is the inauguration of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And it's interesting, you'll notice, that the very first thing that happens, his ministry here, he's, he's heading out with Barnabas on a missionary on his first missionary journey. His ministry begins with a sermon. And the heart of that sermon was the gospel. Now, a couple of things. By way of introduction this morning before we get to the, to the meat of the text. I want you to see that gospel proclamation then is the way the mission moves forward. Every time there was some kind of breakthrough in the book of Acts, it came through bold gospel witness. So there's a pattern. And you even see it here in Acts chapter 13. If you look at verse 9, I, don't, I can't remember if I printed that for you, did I? I did. That's part of what we printed. In Acts 13.9, you'll see uh, that there Saul, who's called Paul, is filled with the Holy Spirit. So what happens over and over again in the book of Acts is that the Spirit comes. There's a filling of the Spirit that happens. The first thing that takes place, the Spirit comes for the purpose of there being bold gospel witness. And it's that gospel witness that leads to gospel advance. So this is, this is the pattern over and over and over again. It's filled with the Spirit, speaking boldly about the gospel, which leads to gospel advance. And, and, and that is what you see here in this first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas and over and over again in Acts. And so, to see a similar kind of movement today, we have to admit, it can't happen without bold gospel witness. It's one of the things I'm praying for. Revival is Holy Spirit fullness that leads to boldness, that leads to witness. And we want to grow. We want to grow the church. That's what we're praying. We want to grow the church through gospel witness. Not through, not through gimmick, not through any of those other kinds of things, but by people sharing the gospel with their friends in the places where they live, work, and play, and so you see, there's just this, this steady call to faithful gospel witness. But notice also that it wasn't just the preaching, but the extraordinary lives of those doing the preaching that were the cause of what we read about in Acts. They were men and women, full of the Spirit, full of boldness, joy, and incredible capacity to endure suffering and carry on. And so the gospel they preached is the power for the kind of life that they lived. Stephen, Peter, Paul... Barnabas, all of those we meet here in this book, they all had been supernaturally changed by the truths they spoke about. And so it was their lives and not just their words. They were compelling people with a message of grace and truth on their lips, empowered by the gospel. And that really, if you want to pray something for our church, pray that. Pray that we would be, like them, compelling people. People that live compelling lives. Compelling people. With a message of grace and truth on their lips, empowered by the Spirit. And so, this text is all about the gospel. Now, there's a temptation. And the temptation, I think, this morning, I felt it anyway in my preparation, is to say, you know, don't we talk about the gospel enough? I mean, do we really need to go back over all that stuff again? And my answer would be that the power that we see in Acts came from their stubborn unwillingness to stop talking about the gospel. So we can't stop talking about the gospel. Because here's what I believe. If you're a Christian, you're here this morning, you're a Christian, um, then you need to hear the gospel. If you're here and you're not a Christian, then the thing you need most is you need to hear the gospel because the, the way you come to faith is by believing the gospel. But if you're a Christian, you need to hear the gospel too because the way you grow in your faith is by believing the gospel more deeply. So no matter where you are on the spectrum of belief this morning, what we all need most desperately is to hear again the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, specifically this morning in this text, in Acts 13, I want you to see, and you'll see it in the outline, it's kind of laid out for you there, that that what I want to meditate on this morning is that uh, the gospel involves all three persons of the Trinity. Christians believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three persons. And so to understand the fullness of the gospel, you have to understand the role that each of the persons plays in the message and in the the doing of salvation. So that's what you see in our our outline. So we're going to look first uh, and see the heart of God the Father in purposing salvation. Secondly, the work of God the Son in accomplishing salvation. And then thirdly, the aim of the Spirit in applying salvation because the three persons are involved in those three ways and together they show us the glory of just what God has done for us. And so let's begin. Let's look... Beginning in that first point, let's look and and see the heart of God the Father in purposing salvation in the text. In other words, what's God like? How does He really feel about us? What is His heart towards us, even in our rebellion and sin? Because what you notice, and what I think the Scripture teaches, is, is that salvation begins in the heart of the Father. Salvation begins in the heart of the Father. So let's look at the first scene in Acts chapter 13. Uh, up there in verses 4 through 10. Paul and Barnabas have been sent out from the church in Antioch, verse 4. They come to Cyprus. They happen upon this man that Luke calls, verse 6, a magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. That means the son of Jesus. So this is his father's name with Jesus, but not the Jesus that we read in the Gospels. Don't get tripped up by that. So as they were preaching, this man, we're told there, keeps... He kept opposing them. They would preach the gospel, and then he, he, would, he would come. He was also called Elimus. He would go behind them as they were preaching and teaching, and he would begin to contradict them. And this really upset Paul. Paul was kind of a fiery guy, and so we're told that he confronted him. He, he looked him right in the eye. You see that in, verse, in verses 8 and following? He says, you son of the devil. So his name's son of Jesus. He says, you're, not son of, you're the son of the devil. He's playing on his name there. You enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And that last phrase is where I'd like to draw our attention, what exactly Paul means by the straight paths of the Lord. Now, if you'll notice something. We pick out the, the scriptures that we read uh, at the beginning of the service because they thematically pick up some of the things in the text. And, and you'll see in Isaiah 40 that in that passage, you find that same phrase, sh- make straight the paths of the Lord in the wilderness, Isaiah 40 or Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, it's also found in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 55, 45, excuse me. and so it's an important image for us to understand, so I need to try to explain it to you, and I want to do it like this, I want to tell you a story. I've uh, traveled to Uganda a few times, um, Jonathan's been there more than I have, but uh, he's taken me along a couple of times, and it's a long trip, and when I say long trip, I mean usually from New York City to... Dubai, and then because of the layover and the switch, you have to spend the night in Dubai, then to Addis Ababa, and then on eventually to Entebbe. And by the time you get there, if you've ever done a trip like that, uh, hours and hours, days, literally, by the time you get there, you're exhausted, you're ready for a shower and a bed. But the hardest part of a trip like that is uh, when you land, uh, your trip's not over. The hardest part is still in front of you because you land in Entebbe, and then the place where we Where we go, where our missionaries are, is still about five hours outside of the city, uh, or, you know, five to eight hours, something like that. And it's not really all that far. It's only about 150 miles. So if you imagine from here to St. Augustine, something like that. But, uh, you know, it takes two hours and a little bit more for us to get there. But uh, the first time I landed in Uganda, it took about six and a half or seven hours to get up uh, from Entebbe to Mbale because, you know, if you've never been to the Third World, the roads aren't exactly that great. And so they're windy, and they're mostly dirt and clay. And, of course, they get washed out, and they're full of potholes, and there are herds of animals crossing uh, the street at any moment. And so it took forever, and you just kind of, you just have to kind of suck it up. You've got to hope that you have um, really good people to talk to or that you've somehow figured out how to keep battery power in some of your stuff so you can put headphones on and just kind of do it whatever, you know, whatever you have to do to endure. So so, uh, the second time I went, I was really dreading that part of the trip. We got out, we got off of the plane, you know, and I was geared up for this. We headed out of the city, and all of a sudden, it had been a few years since I'd been there, and all of a sudden, we're driving on this wide, smooth, paved road, just cruising along, and I It was obvious they had been working hard to replace the old windy dirt road with this wide, wonderful, what would be the equivalent of an interstate highway. It was so out of place. And so I asked the guys who picked me up from the airport, what is this? I mean, why have they made this nice new road? And their answer, just like that, it was so great. They said, the queen is coming. The queen, it's the queen's highway, they said. It's the first time the queen had visited, and I don't remember, 20 years, 25, 30 years. And so now every time I read, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and the uneven ground shall become level, Isaiah says. I think of that road in Uganda, and it helps me make sense of what the Bible's trying to say, I think. The Ugandans, to honor the queen, were wanting to make it as easy as possible for her to get wherever she needed to go in the country. They didn't want, to be, they didn't, they didn't want there to be any obstacles in her way. They didn't want her to have to endure. They didn't, me, they didn't mind so much. But they didn't want her to have to endure that windy, dirt, pothole-filled road. And so, listen, when Isaiah says, make a straight path for the Lord, here's really what I think he's saying. He's saying, make it easy for God to go wherever he wants to go in your life. Make it easy for him to get wherever he wants to get. Don't block off parts of your life. Don't don't create obstacles. Don't put any obstacle in his way. Make yourself absolutely as accessible to him as you can in every way. Give him a straight, give him a straight shot into the most hidden, intimate parts of your heart. And I thought, what would a similar idiom that we use uh, in our in our day would be? Uh, we say, maybe I, I don't think this is just a southern thing, but we say, make a beeline. You with me? I'm gonna make a beeline. You know, I that. I didn't like I didn't like one of the songs Terry sings. I'm gonna make a beeline to him right after the service. Right? Of course you'd never do that. Or as soon as school is out on the last day, I'm gonna make a beeline for home. It means it means to take a direct route. It means wherever you're going, you can't get there fast enough. You, you, everything else fades and you have one. I mean, you just directly move right towards whatever you're you're headed for. That would be a really good translation. So in Isaiah 40. In Isaiah 40, the prophet says, make straight paths for the Lord. In other words, remove every obstacle. Make it easy for him to go wherever he wants to go in your life. It's it's the right image for Paul in what he's saying here in Acts 13, but it's the wrong usage. Because here's the amazing thing. I really think uh, Paul has in mind Isaiah 42 here, because in Isaiah 42, in Isaiah 40, we're the ones making straight paths. In Isaiah 42, God is the one making straight paths. He is the one removing every obstacle. And this is where we see his heart to save. God doesn't want it to be hard for those who are seeking him to find him. We're told he'll cut through mountains. He'll move around whatever dirt he has to. He doesn't want you to have to, fall, you know, to pull out your GPS and, and drive down some out-of-the-way dirt road in the middle of the woods. He, he sees the sadness and the brokenness of the world and how sin is ruining our lives. And he's angry at sin, but he's merciful towards sinners. And he longs with all of his heart to forgive and to redeem. That's what he's like. That's what's in his heart. And he doesn't like it when people, whether we do inadvertently or other people do to us, when we start putting obstacles in the way of people coming to know his love and grace. He doesn't like that. But this, that, that is exactly what this man, Elimus, is doing. He's, he's making the, the, what, the straight paths of the Lord crooked. He's putting obstacles in people's way. He's taking the simple message of the gospel and convoluting it to try to confuse, right? What is true of God? He's a God of grace and love, and he loves to save and to redeem. He's a good, good father, The song, you know that song. I thought about that song this morning. He's a good, good father. That's who he is, and we're loved by him. That's who we are. That's the truth. That is the straight path of the Lord, and, and if you come to him for mercy no matter who you are or what you've done you're welcome. His arms are open wide to you. The gospel, hear me. The gospel is a super highway for the biggest sinners to come to know his forgiveness and love. Right? I mean the gospel is a super highway for the biggest sinners to come to know his forgiveness and love. But here comes Elimas's whisper. That that isn't I don't know. That 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 can that can't be that can't be right. I don't I don't think it works that way. I, I I'm not sure God's really like that. You see, Elimus' crooked path was something like this, I think. It was contradicting that, you know, what I've been saying. It's something like, well, you know, I think God is distant. He's harsh. He's probably angry with you. And so you better do all that you can to to appease him. And if you do it right, you can probably strike some kind of bargain with him and talk him into giving him what you need. Maybe you can wrestle it out of his, his hands, something like that. We're told... That he was a magician. And in the ancient world, magic and religion were basically the same thing. It was the belief that your behavior, you know, you and your behavior could manipulate the spiritual world. That if you did the right things at the right time, in the right order, then you could get, you know, your God or whatever whatever it was you were worshiping to bless you and send rains on your crops and so forth. Now, there's a lesson here uh, that I want to make you aware of. And we're not going to talk about it a great deal, but here's what I want to say. Sometimes the most crooked path that you can follow in seeking God is the path of religion and works righteousness. Sometimes the most crooked path is the path inside the church when the gospel is being distorted. You know what I mean by that? Something like, well, God will love you if. 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 You clean yourself up first if you believe like we do, if if you follow all the rules. But what we're told very clearly here in Acts 13 is that Paul and Barnabas were preaching grace, not religion, grace. Look down at the end of the chapter to verse 43, and I love this little phrase there. The crowds are beginning to just be overwhelmed with the things they're being told here. In verse 43, we're, we're told that... That Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. Continuing continuing in the grace of God. That's the straight path of the Lord. And, And the grace of God means that when it comes to God's heart for you, there's no if. So, do you see the heart of the Father? Salvation begins in the heart of the Father. But secondly, it's accomplished by the work of the Son. So Jesus was sent by the Father to carry out the desires of his heart. That's what we learn uh, from the Bible. So what is the work that Jesus came to do for us? And this is what Paul's sermon is really about. So let's keep going into this, into this second point. And I want you to see that the best way to answer the question in talking about the work of the Son now is, is to begin with verses 38 and 39. So if you look there, this is a summary of the entire sermon. And here's what, here's what Paul says. He says, let it be known to you, therefore... Brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. What a great summary of the gospel message. So the first thing we see here, the first thing these verses do is they show us our problem, that we've sinned, that we need to be forgiven. We've done the things he has told us not to do, and we keep doing them. And we've not done the things he's told us to do, and we keep... Not doing them because we think that we know better than he does what we need to be happy. That's what the Bible means by sin. The result of sin, we're told, is the alienation from God. That we were made for him and we need him the way the flower needs the rain and the sun. But sin has separated us from him. And so what's left in all of our lives to one degree or another is a huge, this is what I'm going to call an absence at the center of our lives that can't be filled with any created thing, though we keep trying to cram stuff in there. And I like that idea of absence. I think it really hits on our experience. Augustine, St. Augustine, not St. Augustine in Florida, St. Augustine used the word restlessness. He says, he says we're restless. That's our problem. And that's really it, I think. Now, I, I have to tell you, I've learned over the years, and Ashley's, Ashley's taught me this. I, I, I thank God for her. My, my children will one day praise God for her. Because if we did not have her, we'd be in a, a lot of trouble. But I've learned over the years that in disciplining my children, and this is something she's taught me, that, that when, um, when, when my children do something wrong, the way to handle that is you have to immediately discipline them. You have to correct. I mean, and what you have to do, the reason you have to do it immediately is because one of the things you have to do is you have to connect the discipline to the event. And then, once you've done the discipline, it's over. You see that? And so a child, when they do something wrong... Now, kid, the kids may disagree with this, but when they, a child, when they do something wrong, they have, a, they have a psychological need to have the wrong addressed and dealt with. That's what it means to live with a guilty conscience. And, and, and so if it just lingers, it creates guilt and shame that becomes a, really a much bigger deal as time goes on. So what you do in discipline is you have to deal with it, and this is what we do in our house. So we would, we would you know, strongly deal with it immediately go right at it, and then once we're done, you know, you, you you give them a hug, and you say, okay, okay, that's over. Let's move on. And I use that analogy because I think that's where a lot of us are. We, we know we've sinned. We feel guilt and shame, and, and, and it's just for many of us hanging out there, so we're not sure uh, what to do with it, and we're not sure where we stand with God. And when you begin to wake up spiritually, you experience that being unsure as restlessness, as As absence, I think. And and so the text shows us this problem. It also provides a warning. What do you do with this restlessness? See? I mean, most people, when they feel this way, what they do, it's very clear here, is they turn to the law. And so when you start to feel like you're a bad person, or that you've been a bad person, the most natural thing to do is to try to change and become a good person and then do enough good that it will make up for all the bad. And that's what Paul says in Galatians 2. It's why we picked that passage when he describes the person who's seeking to be justified by the works of the law, Galatians 2.16. That word freed there in those verses we read in Acts 13 is the same word as that word justified in Galatians 2, and it means to be right. The Bible says that we all have a sense that we're not right. We want to be right, so what we do is we turn to the law and we try to get right by doing right, but that's all wrong. John Calvin, the Swiss reformer, made the observation that the law was never meant to be a means to righteousness. Instead, these were his words. He says, the law shuts all men up under accusation, and instead of giving, it takes away righteousness. So, (laughs) don't look to the law for righteousness, Calvin says. That's not what it's for. The law is designed to do something entirely different. It's designed to take away righteousness, not give it. Now, what does he mean? Well, think about the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Now, you could look at that, I think, I hope, anyway, most of us in the room could look at that and say, well... I'm good there, I've never killed anybody, so check that one off the box. Check that, you know, check that box off the list. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, you've heard it say, you know this, right? You shall not murder. What's he going to do? But I, I say, listen to this, everyone that is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So what Jesus is doing is he's showing us the way the law is really supposed to work. That rule, do not murder. It's not there so that you can check it off the list. It's there so that you can do a check of your heart. You can say, what's in my heart? Is there anger there? Do I speak harshly to other people? See, see, the law doesn't give righteousness. It takes it away. It makes you feel worse about yourself. That's the purpose. So that you'll give up and stop trying to get right by doing right. That's not the way. The law doesn't have the power to make you right. Because while it can help you change your behavior outwardly. To a degree, it can't get into your heart, and so it might motivate you enough to not murder for fear of punishment, but it can't stop you from hating people and being angry with them. I mean, just, just think. I mean, how silly is this? Can you imagine if we passed a law that made it illegal to be impatient? <laughs> what if we threw people into jail for being joyless? I'm in trouble. Life sentence. You with me? You see? You see what I'm saying? so then what's the solution? What do you do with your guilt? Well, the irony is is that the only way to really have your guilt dealt with is you have to admit it. You have to be honest about it. You have to stop trying to solve the problem on your own. That's repentance. You have to look to Jesus for the solution. That's faith. And that's the moment when you find forgiveness and freedom. Look at the verse again. If you come to Jesus Christ, you can be freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. The gospel succeeds where the law fails. If you were to walk into a synagogue, at the very front of the room, in the very center would be a huge depiction of the Ten Commandments. Because Judaism teaches that the solution to your badness is your goodness. But at the front of our sanctuary is a cross. Now it's hidden. There is one up there. We have to figure out how to move the screen so we can have the cross on display, as it should be. But at the front of our sanctuary is a cross. Because Christianity teaches that the solution to our badness is not our doing, but the Savior's doing. Now back up in verse 28, Paul made the point that Jesus' accusers could find in him no guilt worthy of death. It's an, interesting, it's an interesting observation there in verse 28. He didn't point that out to make the Jewish leaders look bad. That was not his reason. He's doing theology there. He's saying Jesus didn't die because he was guilty. He didn't die for his sins. And, of course, if Jesus didn't die for his sins, then why did he die? It must be that he died for our sins. He took our curse upon himself. By dying... The death that we should have died, and by living the life that we should have lived, he can give us a rightness that goes beyond anything the law can give. So the solution to our badness is his goodness. His goodness, not ours. But listen, it gets even better than that. Can you imagine that? Because there's a second part of the gospel. Our problem is not just that we are guilty and we need to be forgiven and made right. But did you notice, as we read, that there's a word that keeps coming up over and over? If you go back, you'll see it. Over and over and over again, Paul starts to talk about the word corruption. He just says it over and over. So not just guilt, but we're also, and here's the word I want to use. The problem at the center of our life is not just guilt, but also that we have to deal with a great, a great deal of loss. And that's the word I want to use. The catechism uses the word ruin. I actually like the word loss better. Life is full of loss. Most of the pain that we experience is pain from something that, that we had that has been lost. Sin has stolen so much from us, and that that is that is very, very painful. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe wrote a, a poem, you know, in his way, which he's a pretty dark guy, but very, very poignant stuff he wrote, but a poem called The Raven. And it's a poem about a man who has lost his love, and he's despondent. He's not sure he'll ever get over it. He, he's just falling apart emotionally. And and what happens in the poem is this this bird, this raven, comes into the room where he is, and, uh, and he's just tormented, and the raven just keeps speaking the same word over and over again. Nevermore. Nevermore. Uh, and he, you know, he starts the dialogue with the bird, and every question he asks, the bird just squawks back at him. Nevermore. Nevermore. And what Edgar Allan Poe is trying to get over in the poem is this seemingly, the seemingly the seeming irreversibility of life. That's, that's what that word corruption means, that things seem to always be falling apart, don't they? That the very best parts of life are just brief moments that pass all too quickly and then you can't go back and recover them. You're young and then you're old and no matter how hard you try, you can't go back and recover your youth or your kids are with you and then they're not and you want, (laughs) you know, you look at old pictures and it just hurts. You know what I'm talking about? just hurts because you'd give anything for just, you know, to go back for just a moment but you can't, you make mistakes, and then you can't take them back, you can't undo them, Then there's regret, it feels like everything is just going and you never, you never get it back, it's, it's irreversible, and it's hard, and Paul says Jesus not only died for our sins, to deal with our guilt, but God raised him from the dead. We're told here over and over again to deal with our loss. And so the gospel is the cross and the resurrection. And at the cross, Jesus dealt with our guilt. But in the resurrection, he has dealt with our loss. So we read verse 34 that God raised him from the dead. And look at the phrase, no more to return to corruption. And then in verse 36, he whom God raised up did not see corruption. What does all that mean? I don't have time to get into all of it. But here's what, you, here's what we could say. Christianity... The good news, the gospel of the good news of Christianity, is that Jesus doesn't just offer us a consolation for all the loss we've experienced. The resurrection offers so much more than that—not just consolation. The resurrection actually offers the restoration of all we've lost, all the joy that's back there in your life that you're so desperate to get back to. The resurrection teaches that you'll get it back, and it'll be even better. Than it was before, you, you you know the resurrection teaches that you're going to get your body back, but but I but the body that you always wished you had. You're going to get you're going to get your life back, but but without the mix of of sorrow in there with all of the joy that we're going to get the world back. But the world renewed and perfect. See, the resurrection at the center of Christianity is the doctrine of the resurrection, and the resurrection. Is, is the promise of the reversal of irreversibility. The resurrection is the screaming no to nevermore. And it's the hope that our hearts really will be healed one day. So you see, salvation begins in the heart of God. You know, God's heart for you. It's accomplished by the work of the Son. And then lastly, very quickly, it's personally applied to each individual Believer by the Holy Spirit. And that's the third point. That that the aim of God's Spirit. The aim of God's Spirit in applying salvation. It, so it's the Spirit's job to take these truths. And bring them home to our hearts in such a way. That we begin to be changed and be different. Different kind of people than we actually were before. The kind of people that we see taking the world by storm here. In in the book of Acts. People full of fearlessness and joy. And and the ability to to, to endure hard things. And keep going and press through. I mean these people that has this incredible buoyancy and capacity to to overcome difficult circumstances. Don't you want to be like that? Well, it's when when the gospel begins to really take root in you, and it's the spirit that aims the gospel at individual hearts. See, there's a difference between saying, I believe that Jesus died, and on the other hand, saying, I believe that Jesus died for me. There's a difference between hearing the gospel and saying, well, man, that sounds pretty good, and... Hearing it, and as we read in the text in verse 48, rejoicing and glorifying in the word of the Lord, right? Isn't that, isn't that what, what you see? You know, I'm faced with this reality every week. It doesn't matter how well I communicate from this stage unless the Holy Spirit supernaturally communicates the gospel to the heart. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, said that the preacher blows a trumpet in the ear, but the spirit opens the heart. And so it's the Spirit's job to take the truth of the gospel and to make it real to the heart, to bring it home to the heart. We can't do it. It's it's a work that must be done to us. The Spirit must come. And so we should I mean, we meet before every service every week, and that's what we pray. We your your pastors and your elders and your leaders, we pray, Oh, God, open hearts, open our hearts, bring the spirit to bear upon our hearts, because we you know we need you to come and do something, or else we're we're lost. And that's what we read. It's why we read here in verse forty eight. That as Paul and Barnabas go out preaching. And the Gentiles begin to believe, they, they, they begin to rejoice, and they're glorifying the word of the Lord. And then in verse 48 we read, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Now, notice, it does not say, as many as believe were appointed to eternal life. It says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Not that could trip people up. And what does it mean? Well, there's a theological debate to be had here. I'm not interested in that. Not here, not now. We can talk about that some other time. You can call me and we can discuss it individually, what I am interested in is how how we apply that phrase there in that verse to our hearts and here's the way we do it i think in two ways first first what it what that what that little phrase there at the end of verse 48 means is it means that salvation is what god does it's all him we do nothing and the very reaching out to take a hold of what he has done for us is also what he has done for us faith which is the reaching out of the soul to take a hold of christ in his work to save us is a part of his work to save us. And so if you're a Christian, Jesus has not only done work for you, but he's also done work in you. His grace is both the accomplishing of the work that you need for him to do and the applying supernaturally of that work to your heart so that you come to really believe it and understand it and know it and cherish it and delight in it. But then there's another thing that I think the verse means, and it's just this, that God's love is always specific. It searches out It seeks individuals. God doesn't just love in general. He loves specifically. We're told in the Bible that there's a book in heaven. And in that book is written all the names of those he loves. And that's what that word appointed means. God doesn't just love. He sets his love on individuals. He loves deliberately, specifically, eternally, unchangeably. See, it's one thing. It's one thing to know that God loves in theory, generally. Yeah, I mean, I get that. It's another thing for somebody to be able to say, He loves me. Jesus loves me, this I know. The me that I am. In all of my awkwardness, He, he loves me. Not the me that He wants me to be, not the me, I, the me that I am. He loves me. See, that's the difference. And that's where the bold witness and the joy and the power you see in Acts come from because you see the people. The people who know that, who really know that, who've had the Spirit so work in their heart that they've become convinced of that. It's their names that are written in heaven's book. It's their names that are written in heaven's book. But that's the work we need Him to do in us even today. And so let's pray, can't we? So Father, as we come now to sing these last few songs together... We do pray that you would so work by the Spirit that you would not leave us to wonder this morning in the, you know, as the service comes to a close. I wonder, I wonder if he's talking about me. Could it be that God, that God loves me? Could it be that he has broken through every obstacle? He has ripped right through mountains to get to me? Could that be true? It's the question of every single one of our hearts. It's what keeps us paralyzed by fear and anxiety and, and worry and fretting. It's what causes us to look back so longingly and not look forward to the promise of what's coming. It's what, it's what keeps us living such small, safe lives and not, not bold lives of witness for your glory and for your kingdom. And so would you come... Holy Spirit, in these moments, and would you do... I can't even explain the work, but would you do a work to where it would come over us in a way we can't even articulate or understand that if we turn from our sin and repentance and faith to you, that your arms are open wide to us, and we can know this morning not only that you're a God of love, but that you're a Father who loves us specifically, individually, In all of our messiness and awkwardness. So that your love might be shed abroad in our hearts. In the way we go to live our lives today. That's our hope and our prayer. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. No matter where you are on the spectrum of faith. Know that the labor before you as you go this week. Is just exactly what you read in the text. That you uh, labor to continue in the grace of God. And So let this benediction uh, help with that because here again is the expression of his heart for you that as you go uh, he promises to go with you uh, to pour out his love and and blessing and and profound abundance upon you and so go and labor to continue in his grace uh, with these words ringing uh, in your ears may the lord bless you and keep you may the lord make his face shine upon you be gracious to you may the lord turn his face towards you and give you peace both now and forevermore amen go in his peace